Cities across the country have seen an increase in pedestrian deaths since the onset of the pandemic. It's an issue we first covered on 1A in November 2021 when I talked to Bloomberg City Lab reporter Laura Bliss about the surge. The first six months of 2021 uh, saw the largest six-month jump in traffic fatalities on record, uh, up from 18.4% from the same period in 2020. Um, all told, that's more than 20,000 people who died. So, you know, together with the numbers from 2020, this is a really alarming trend line, particularly since traffic deaths have largely been on the decline prior to the pandemic. But when you when you break it out into specific categories, you really see that, you know, certain types of road users are particularly affected. Pedestrians, they are the perhaps most vulnerable, you know, road user group of all, um, cyclists as well. And then also when we break this this data down by race, we see that people of color are disproportionately affected by traffic violence. Compared to 2019, drivers killed 23% more Black Americans and 11% more Native Americans than they did in 2020, um, compared to just a 4% increase for white Americans. Since that show, the pedestrian safety crisis has worsened nationally. Preliminary estimates from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration show that fatalities among pedestrians in the first half of 2022 increased 2 percent compared to the same period in 2021. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Transportation announced $800 million in grants as part of its Safe Streets for All program. It'll fund more than 500 projects across the country that aim to improve roadway infrastructure. And while these programs address all traffic fatalities, today we're focusing on pedestrian deaths. The program is set to disperse $5 billion in appropriated funds over the next five years. So what impact will this federal investment have on pedestrian deaths, and how can we make communities safer for pedestrians? We'll answer those questions and get into so much more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can join us for future conversations. Just download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into it. Joining us from New York is Jenny O'Connell. She's the Senior Program Manager of Safety at the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Jenny, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Jenny, the last time we checked in on this issue in 2021, it proved to be the deadliest year for pedestrians in four decades. More than 7,400 people were killed, and that's according to the Governor's Highway Safety Association. What does the 2022 data tell us? So the data that we have from 2022 is still incomplete. We only have data from half of the year, um, but the trend is looking worse. So the pedestrian fatalities are up from that same period in 2021. And what we know in 2021 is that the pedestrian fatalities were at an all-time high after about uh, 10 to 15 years of increasing on our streets. Um, But what's really alarming in the statistics that we've seen about traffic fatalities in the United States is not just the increase that we've seen over the last decade or so, but really how dangerous our streets are to begin with. Um, You know, our streets in the United States are more than twice as deadly as those in Canada, three times as deadly as those in Australia, and four times as those in the UK. Um, And that's just a couple of countries who we consider to be peers. And when you talk about the streets being less safe in the U.S., you're talking about the actual structure of the roads, right? Yeah. In the United States, we design our roads to be really fast and really wide and move a lot of cars quickly. 
Um, and that's also true in other countries, but historically in the United States, we've sort of emphasized um, streets that move cars uh, instead of moving people. Um, so we haven't focused as much on uh, the safe and accessible mobility for people walking and biking as we've seen in other countries. Well, that echoes a couple of tweets we've gotten. Kokomo Kid tweets, where I am in Florida Beach Town, there aren't many places to safely cross the major street a block from the beach. Also, too many drivers run red lights at the crosswalks. And Jeff tweets, we need more protected bike lanes. And wouldn't it be nice if those lanes went to all the places we needed to go? Maybe people would drive less. Jenny, what kinds of projects are funded under the Department of Transportation's Safe Streets for All program? Well, yeah, the Safe Streets for All program is really exciting because it's a very well-designed program that funds the exact kinds of projects that we know can have a meaningful impact on street safety. And those are projects like bike lanes and connected sidewalks, um, improved street lighting and improved pedestrian crossings. And what's really important about the Safe Streets for All program is that this uh, funding is going directly to municipalities. And we know that, in particular, pedestrian fatalities are concentrated in municipalities because that's where people tend to walk and bike more. And just to be clear, traditionally, the Department of Transportation would give funding to the states, and they would use their discretion to redistribute it at the local level. But in this case, individual municipalities can access the funds directly. That's exactly right. Now, the bulk of the funding is going to cities, but what other jurisdictions get to benefit from these grants? For this particular grant program, um, there are are a variety of subdivisions of states that are eligible for the funding. So that's, of course, municipalities, cities, um, but it's also counties, metropolitan planning organizations, uh, tribal governments, and uh, consortiums of those different subdivisions of states. So lots of different um, agencies are eligible for the funding, and it's all public agencies that are eligible for the funding. Um, But like you said, for this particular Uh, grant program, the um, state departments of transportation are not eligible for funding, nor are the state-owned roadways. So what effect is this direct local investment expected to have on the number of pedestrian fatalities? Well, you know, cities are really attuned to what's going on on their streets. They have a really clear understanding of the kinds of fatal and serious injury crashes that are taking place on their streets, where they're happening, who is most impacted. Um, And by giving funding directly to cities to address the problems that they know they have, um, this funding has the potential to make a huge difference in the lives of hundreds of thousands of people living and uh, moving about in U.S. cities um, because the cities have the ability to specifically target treatments and solutions in places and um, towards the kinds of crashes that they know are happening all over their cities. When we turn back to the start of this segment, we talked about the disproportionate impact of pedestrian fatalities in low-income communities and communities of color. How does this new federal investment address those issues? One of the really exciting uh, components of the Safe Streets for All grant program is that um, part of the scoring criteria for projects that are funded through this program is, you know, how well the project invests in in disproportionately impacted communities, um, whether it addresses and seeks to decrease known disparities, and whether the project includes robust and inclusive engagement and collaboration. And that's really important because in the United States, as the clip that you highlighted from Laura explained, 
um, you know, in particular, uh, black people living in the United States and uh, indigenous people living in the United States are disproportionately impacted by the traffic fatality crisis. And a large part of the reason for that is because of the land use decisions and the housing decisions that we have made as a country over the last uh, many decades that have pushed uh, communities to areas that have really dangerous built environment conditions. So the kinds of wide, fast streets that we're all very familiar with from our cities, um, those are more prevalent in lower income communities and communities of color. And as a result, we know that there are more traffic fatalities or a higher uh, percentage of traffic fatalities are disproportionately concentrated in those communities. Well, we got this email from Hillary who says, literally, no one stops for the crosswalks in my neighborhood in Pittsburgh. It's always scary crossing with my baby and dog. We also got this email from Denise who says, I love that bike ridership is up here in Washington, D.C., but it's clear we do not have enough well-protected bike lanes for more riders to feel safe. Nordic cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam have really perfected this by putting in lots of biking infrastructure, so much so that biking is more common and often more efficient to get around than using a car. Now, Jenny, in recent years, many cities have used the term Vision Zero to describe their goal of eliminating traffic fatalities. Where does Vision Zero originate? Vision Zero is a concept that originated in the 1990s in Sweden. And the basic premise behind Vision Zero is that you can use a systems-driven approach to improving traffic safety on your streets. And that systems-driven approach is largely oriented around Uh, improved street engineering and design to make streets safer. So it takes the onus off of the individuals who are using the streets and places the responsibility on creating safety on our streets on in the hands of the people who are designing and engineering and planning and making decisions about our streets. Um, Because of course, all humans make mistakes and that's a natural part of life. So the, the real question is, how can you use a systems-driven approach, which is what a Vision Zero approach is, to um, change the, system, the street system to make it safer for everybody? And where have we seen Vision Zero work in the U.S.? Vision Zero has been really successful in the places where it's able to flourish. So, um, you know, one thing that's important to note is that um, a lot of cities have had success on a large number of their streets and have seen a reduction in fatalities and serious injury crashes on their streets. But fatality numbers might still be high in those cities because um, the, the traffic crashes that occur on roads that are owned by other entities like state departments of transportation might not have come down. But when cities apply Vision Zero principles like um, protected places for people to walk and bike and roll and um, communities that are really well connected and um, infrastructure that is really protected and safe, we do see that fatalities have gone down. So there are a number of really good examples of specific roads, but in New York City, where I live, we've seen this happen on a number of different streets. Um, Queens Boulevard is a really good example of a street where the New York City Department of Transportation had a major traffic fatality crisis for a long time. And they were able to implement a number of different kinds of street design changes that ultimately had a huge impact on the walkability of that street, the bikeability of that street, and how safe that street was for all people using it.
Robert emailed us, the core of the highway safety problem now is human behavior. We are in such a hurry and drive so self-indulgently. How can federal money change that? Whether it's excessive speed, impatient tailgating, or distracted driving, is there any hope for significant improvement? So, Jenny, Robert there is really speaking to to driver behavior. And is there is that addressed in the new federal program? Well, again, the idea of a vision zero approach or a safe systems approach, which is really the direction that we're happy to see the U.S. Department of Transportation trending in, is that we want to take the responsibility off of the individual driver and instead design, engineer, and plan roads that we know are going to be safer for everybody using them. So there are lots of kinds of uh, street design and um, engineering choices that Uh, transportation planners and engineers can make to keep streets slower and safer for everybody. This is the kinds of treatments like um, narrower lanes or uh, reduced number of lanes, protected bike lanes, which both narrow the street for people driving and, um, you know, increase the protected space for people walking, really good connected wide sidewalks for people to Uh, walk and roll uh, safely that, again, can sort of take some of the space away from the streets. And um, those kinds of roads that are more multimodal and uh, better for people walking and biking and using the road outside of their car are generally going to be safer and more consistent for everybody using the street, even drivers. I want to get your response to this email we got from Jeremy, who says, in Southern Ohio, it isn't so much vehicles driving too fast or recklessly, but instead very unsafe pedestrians walking into traffic, not using crosswalks, looking down at their phone. At any moment, someone could step out in front of your vehicle without looking. Your thoughts, Jenny? Well, we have a history in the United States of blaming pedestrians for um, taking risky behaviors, even though Drivers are driving multi-ton vehicles that um, can result in serious injury or death uh, when they when they strike a pedestrian or another car or uh, somebody biking. And you know we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. We all sort of move the way that they the way that we move. Um, and that's why the responsibility shouldn't be on a pedestrian to you know, always be head on a swivel and looking around all the time, but rather should be on us as uh, roadway planners and engineers and designers to create spaces where pedestrians can be who they are and they can move the way that pedestrians move um, and still be safe on the street. So, um, you know, we have all sorts of different, um, you know, abilities of users and ages of of street users. And every single one of those users on the street, um, from a small child to an older adult using a mobility device to everybody in between, should be able to navigate the street safely um, and uh, easily without having to be really concerned that they need to always be, you know, looking every which way and making sure that um, each step that they take is 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 not going to be, um, you know, the end of their life. That's Jenny O'Connell. She's the Senior Program Manager of Safety at the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Jenny, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, we hear from elected officials about the newly funded pedestrian safety projects in their cities. Back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Mm-hmm. 
Let's get back to our discussion about pedestrian safety. We got this email from Devin who says, as a resident of a southern Georgia town, a couple hours south of Atlanta, I can tell you first and foremost, our town is not set up for pedestrian safety whatsoever. Our city is not conducive to walking traffic, and I almost exclusively have to drive to get anywhere, which is unfortunate since I'd prefer to walk or bike if if given the choice. I wish we could have the ability to commute confidently without fear of being mowed over by a hurried and over-distracted driver. Well, let's turn now to some programs in cities across the country. Joining us is Representative Al Green. He's a Democratic member of the House representing Texas's 9th District, which includes parts of Houston. Representative Green, it's great to have you. Thank you. It's an honor to be on with you. And if I may say so, your last interview was excellent. Uh, my compliments to the interviewee. Thank you very much. Also with us is Mayor John Bowders. He's the Democratic mayor of Emeryville, California, that's just north of Oakland. He's also the chair of the Alameda County Transportation Commission, which includes Oakland and Berkeley. Mayor Bowders, welcome. Hi, Jen. How are you today? Doing well. So your county received a $15 million grant from the Department of Transportation Uh, the Department of Transportation, to redesign San Pablo Avenue. How did the Transportation Commission select that site? San Pablo Avenue is a very large corridor in Alameda County. And as you mentioned at the outset, Alameda County is home to about 1.7 million people who live in the heart of the San Francisco Bay's East Bay area. And it stretches across four cities in our county between downtown Oakland and our border with Contra Costa County. It is a state highway and a main thoroughfare that includes historically a large number of communities of color. Um, It has areas that are priority development areas and areas that have been disproportionately underinvested in. And the vision and goal of Alameda County's Transportation Commission is to prioritize funding and investment um, in communities that have been traditionally disinvested by providing them with safety investments that will improve the quality of their lives and give them meaningful transportation choices. And that's why San Pablo is a priority for us. Our Representative Green Houston also received a federal grant to overhaul Bissonette Street, and it accounts for the highest number of fatal crashes across all city-owned street. What changes are coming there? Uh, This is a great opportunity for us to not only make streets safer, but to in fact save some lives. And some of the changes will deal with the reconfiguration of street lanes. Um, There will be protected bike lanes and sidewalks. Uh, It's important to note that I went out to have a site visit just this weekend. And while I was there, I was um, nearly uh, engaged in an accident myself. Mm. Uh, We had a driver who was apparently in a hurry. And this driver um, came directly at us as we were making a turn and then went around us and and then went right in front of us to cut us off. So it is important for us to deal with the turn lanes, and that's one portion of the, the project that will uh, be a very uh, very important to us. Uh, roundabouts will be installed. Roundabouts are important because they slow traffic, and um, they prevent a lot of the very, very deadly accidents. The head-on accidents don't occur as frequently in roundabouts. The uh, accidents where you have Uh, side uh, swipes and perpendicular hitting of cars uh, uh, by uh, other vehicles. Uh, These things are means by which we can hopefully prevent injuries, but also save lives. And finally, there's something very important, the pedestrian refuge islands. Uh, Islands such as medians, which will allow persons to cross and then pause and then proceed. Uh, Many of those streets don't have such islands available to the pedestrians who are traversing. 
The sidewalks are right on the roadway. Uh, they need to be widened and there needs to be some distance between the vehicles and the pedestrians. Uh, we don't have enough of that. So I'm thinking that this is going to be a great opportunity for us to save lives. And I have a bit of statistical information that I believe to be important enough to mention. Between 2014 and 2018, there were 18 crashes along this stretch of road, which led to serious injury or death. Between 2014 and 2024, there were 19 fatalities and 149 serious injuries. Uh, this seven mile stretch of road is going to be rehabilitated with $28.79 million in federal funds. Uh, this, is, this is a wonderful thing to happen to this community because it is a community where persons are not of high income, uh, primarily people of color, rich with people of color, I might add, and it will afford people of color in this community to have safer sidewalks, uh, better streets such that they can traverse and uh, do so uh, in a, a manner that will be slower and safer and save lives. Mayor Bowders, what improvements can residents expect to San Pablo Avenue? Just like the representative said, and you have to give Houston a lot of credit. I was there this past year. They're doing some really incredible things. So compliments to the representative. Very similar circumstances and situation. We're really looking to do two things. The $15 million of funding that we received um, from the, from the uh, federal funds, the bipartisan infrastructure law, will be used to target the north part, the first phase of our overall $125 million project on this corridor. It'll include bus bulb outs for our Alameda Contra Costa Transit rapid bus stops. We'll do lighting upgrades, ADA compliant curb ramps at intersections that don't have them, uh, traffic signal upgrades, bus stop relocations that will make them safer and more accessible, uh, a number of other major cross street improvements, including traffic calming and diverters. Uh, so we're gonna be doing a whole number of things that are really oriented around the pedestrian experience and the vulnerability of um, people who are on the margins when it comes to ages and abilities being able to access a corridor like this safely. We got this email from Anne who says transportation is a huge issue for people with disabilities. Getting safely from one place to another can be a big problem, especially for people who use wheelchairs, who are blind or who are deaf. If we want to have safe streets for all, we need to consider their safety needs too. Representative Green in Houston, how did you include the, the types of transportation needs people with disabilities in your community need? How did you include that in your planning process? Well, the city of Houston uh, has a great uh, department uh, that deals with these kinds of uh, circumstances. And the uh, city of Houston um, has concluded that we have to have safer sidewalks and areas for persons who are disabled to cross. Uh, there has to be signage uh, that makes it uh, perspicuously clear that pedestrians will be crossing. Uh, and also flashing lights can uh, be uh, of great help to persons who are in wheelchairs uh, to let the public know that you have people who are in need of some degree of, uh, of visibility. And uh, to, you have to be careful in these areas to, to proceed with caution, if you will. Uh, this, is, this is really something that we have to want to see occur because these things don't happen just by accident. And I'm, I'm very proud of what we were able to do to get this money uh, into Houston and to these other cities. Uh, this grant program, I am convinced, will save lives. And I am especially pleased with how we will uh, address those who have disabilities by making better signage, flashing lights, um, making sure that the roads themselves 
have indications that persons are crossing and highly visible crosswalks as well. Maureen emails, I love to walk and I walk a lot. A couple of days ago, I was crossing a street and reached the middle of the intersection as an extended cab pickup was approaching from my right. He was looking to his left and he rolled right into me. Fortunately, he was going slow and didn't hit me hard. But we all need to remember that the roads are not just for cars. Maureen, glad you're safe. We also got this from Laura, who says, I am all for the idea of designing streets to be safer and more inclusive of multiple modes of movement. But I want to push back on the suggestion that cars should shoulder all of the responsibility. Traffic is a complicated moving system and relies on everyone to pay attention to lights, signs, environmental conditions, and each other. The real problem is the self-centered approach that so many of us take. Representative Green, I would love to hear your response to that because we are hearing from people who say, I'm a driver, as I'm driving, I'm looking out for pedestrians, but pedestrians aren't always paying attention to what's happening in the roads around them. Well, this is true. Um, I think that we all have a responsibility when we are traversing the roadways or if we're walking on the sidewalks to pay attention to our environment. Uh, I do think that we have to be cautious and careful with the use of phones, uh, especially given that they can be very uh, distracting when you're trying to email or text. And even talking on the phone can cause one to be distracted. So we do encourage the persons who are, are traversing uh, as uh, pedestrians to, to pay attention to the signage and the signs and the lights that are flashing as well. But um, in the final analysis, I, I would contend that uh, because the driver is uh, in, in, has within his or her power uh, to move forward or at a slower rate of speed, uh, I think that you have to really be careful with that tons, tons of uh, instrumentality that you're moving in. And, and, and I'm not going to put all of the blame on the drivers. I wouldn't do that. But I do want drivers to understand that what you have is an instrumentality that can cause great harm when it comes into contact with the human body. Uh, and I think that's the point that we're making. But clearly, pedestrians have a responsibility to, to walk when the cross light indicates that you can walk as opposed to simply walk out into the street. Mayor Bowders, how long did it take you to get access to this money? Well, we applied for this grant uh, this past year. We made a trip as a county commission to D.C. and had meetings in May of last year. And a decision for the funding came uh, early this year. So I would say it was about a one-year timeline between application and getting notification as we got a few weeks ago that we would get these funds. Now, the San Pablo Avenue project incorporates feedback from the community on safety measures. How are residents reacting to this increased focus on pedestrian safety? Yeah, it comes with mixed reactions. Uh, We formed an active transportation working group across the county. We held a series of extensive public engagement. We had three rounds of meetings with the community. We did surveys, focus groups uh, targeted on uh, vulnerable users. We had some community pop-up events and workshops in preparation for this project's uh, design, but also for the application. And the feedback was mixed. As you might imagine, there were a lot of people who sound like some of the callers and, and, and folks emailing you this morning and afternoon telling you uh, that there's concerns in their own community. Uh, we, we heard those same concerns from vulnerable users. And we also heard from drivers who felt that they would be inconvenienced by the prioritization of transit lanes or the removal of street parking. Uh, as the representative mentioned, we have a shared responsibility to provide for the common safety of each other. And you know, our, our position here in the county is that uh, we have to create equitable choices for people when it comes to 
safe commuting. And if people choose to walk or bike, there should be no reason why their uh, commute choices or travel choices are any less safe or optimized than a person who chooses to use a motor vehicle. Uh, so for us, that was their prioritization in creating the balance and the design for this project. I'd love to hear from each of you whether you think accomplishing Vision Zero is a realistic goal for your jurisdiction. Representative? Absolutely is um, accomplishable and achievable. And my belief is that if you can um, monitor this and have us back in a few years, possibly it may take that long, I think there will be empirical evidence to support the notion that uh, we have done an outstanding job in reducing fatalities and and uh, injur- injuries along this corridor. Mayor Bowders, you get the last word here. Yes, I would absolutely agree. Leadership begins with you yourself and your community, and each of us make a choice every day in how we uh, live our lives, and hopefully we live them with the safety of others in mind. Vision Zero is completely achievable. That's John Bowders. He's the mayor of Emeryville, California. He's also the chair of the Alameda County Transportation Commission. Also with us, Representative Al Green. He's a Democratic member of the House representing Texas's 9th District. Thanks to you both. Today's producers were Maya Garg and Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.